Verse 20. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, which is Jerusalem, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. It's probably about three in the afternoon. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Now, as I said, the prayer takes roughly three minutes to pray in Hebrew. Which tells us it doesn't really take lengthy, wordy, long prayers to reach the Lord. It's not the amount of words that gets God's attention. It's the amount of heart. It's a right heart before the Lord as you come seeking Him, praying to Him. But I love this. Notice how fast the response came. Okay, Verse 20 says, while I was speaking and praying. Verse 21 says, while I was still speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel came. Verse 23 says, At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. Which means the moment that Daniel began his prayer. The second he said, Alas, the command was issued. Gabriel, go! So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the distance from heaven to earth is three minutes. (laughs) On Gabriel's rocket, right? Catch a ride with Gabriel? That's how quick... Maybe even sooner. Actually, J. Vernon McGee says if Daniel's eyes were closed, it may have been faster than he realized. That Gabriel perhaps was shifting from one foot to the other waiting for Daniel to get done with his prayer. Point is, it was immediate. Just as the Lord promised in Isaiah 65.24, it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are speaking, I will hear. So ironic. That God says that, speaks that in His Word. We know that. And yet people will say, God, are you listening? I keep crying out. Can you hear me? And Daniel didn't say that. I'm so thankful because Daniel would have said, Lord, are you listening to me? And opened his eyes and, oh, there, there's Gabriel. I guess, I guess you were listening. He hears you from the moment you start to pray. While we are still speaking. Before we call, he says, I will answer. Well, God heard Daniel's prayer. And so in response, Daniel was in the Word, listening to the Lord through the Word. Daniel began to turn his attention to the Lord and pray. And now Daniel hears from the Lord in response. And that's the dynamic. The ministry of the Word and prayer. Get into the Word. Pray to the Father and listen. And let Him speak to you. And so he begins to speak to Daniel. He brings this word. We go from three minutes to 490 years in just four verses. Are you ready? Should we stand up and stretch? Alright, here we go. Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27 has been called the backbone of Daniel. Which has been called the backbone of Bible prophecy. So this is one serious spine. It isn't the result of Daniel asking for it, but again, it is the result of Daniel being in the Word and praying, and that's when things happen. 
That's where the significance of the spiritual walk really takes place, right there in the Word and in prayer. Verse 24, so Gabriel speaking to Daniel. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Who are Daniel's people? The Jews. Okay, let's be clear on that. What's the holy city? Jerusalem. So this prophecy is absolutely specific for the Jewish people and for Jerusalem. Anyone tries to tell you that Daniel 9, 24-27 is broad-based to different groups, or perhaps this cult, or perhaps this group, rather, instead of the Jews in Israel, they're wrong. Because Gabriel specifies at the beginning who it's for. Your people, Daniel, and for the holy city, that's what this is about. And it has to do with 70 weeks. And I hate the word weeks because it just it's not a good word in the translation. The Hebrew word for 70 is shavim. Shavim. It's it's a multiple of the word sheva, which is seven. So shavim or shavim um, means 70. Okay, so that's the first word, 70. The second word that you see there that says weeks, be clear on this, is shabuah. The Hebrew word shabuah, which is not seven days specifically, it is a unit of seven. Shabuah means, it's like we have a word for that, we don't use it much, but it's a heptad. A heptad in the English language is seven. Like a dozen is twelve, a heptad is seven. So shabuah is a unit of seven. So the question is, when he says 70 sevens, 70 Shabua have been decreed for you, the question is, what does that unit of seven mean? Is it seven days? So 70 times seven days would be 490 days. Is it seven, uh, is it Shabua seven years? Well, 70 times seven years, 70 sets of seven years would be 490 years, right? So you're tracking with me? So which is it? That's the question. So we go back, first of all, to the principle of first first mention in Genesis 29. Anytime you run across a Bible phrase or a Bible word and you're, you're unclear about what it means, go back to the very first time it's used and you'll find it very instructive. I've shared before, the first mention of the word love is when God says to Abraham, take Isaac, your son whom you love, up the mountain to sacrifice him. The first mention of the word love is connected to the sacrifice of a father, uh, of a son by his father, which tells us what ultimate love really is: the sacrifice of God the Father, sacrificing Jesus on the cross. So, principle of first mention: When is the first time the word shabuah is used in the Scripture? And it's Genesis chapter twenty-nine, verse twenty-seven. First time we see it, Genesis twenty-nine. Jacob has discovered this absolute beauty named Rachel. Rachel, and he says, I want Rachel. So he goes to her father, Laban. And Laban, kind of like Jacob, is a trickster, and Laban says, Oh, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll, we'll make a deal. You work for me uh, you know, for seven years, and I'll give you my daughter, Rachel. And so we're told that he worked for him for seven years, close to it. Comes up and says, I, you know, I really want to marry her. He says, great, they have the wedding. Of course, she's got the veil on during the wedding. They go into the tent that night. They you know, do what married couples do at, at night. The next morning he wakes up, the veil is off, and it's old weak eyes. <laughs> Laban sticks Jacob with Leah. Well, i got to marry off the older daughter. You know, got to gets rid of Leah. And so it, 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 Jacob 
is incensed. He goes to Laban and he goes, you gave me the wrong one. So Laban says, first time this word is mentioned, Shabuah, Genesis 29-27, complete, complete the Shabuah of this one. Translation says, complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also for the service, which you shall serve with me for another seven years. The first time Shabuah is used, it's a unit of seven years. Specifically. So we see that drawn out in Scripture. Biblically and historically, 70 Shabuah translates to 70 units of seven years each. So we are talking about a span of 490 years. And even for those who display, dispute the placing of the prophecy, they have to admit we're not talking about 490 days, but 490 years. Why? Because nothing important happened historically 490 days after this prophecy began. You can look and see. This is nothing. It's not tied to anything. 490 years later, however, that's a big deal. That is significant. Watch how big this truly is. Six reasons are given now for the 70 Shabuah, for the 490 year period of time. Six reasons. Number one, he says, to finish the transgression. Secondly, to make an end of sin. Thirdly, to make atonement for iniquity. Fourthly, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Fifthly, to seal up vision and prophecy. And sixth, to anoint the most holy place. All of that has to happen for this 490 year period to be fulfilled. That's huge. That's, that's the whole plan, right? To finish the transgression, specifically speaking of the transgression gang of Israel, remember because this is Israel's prophecy, well, well which transgression of Israel? I would say it's the rejection of Messiah. The great transgression. The, the big one. To reject Jesus as their Messiah when He came to His own and His own would not receive Him. To make an end of sin. To finish the transgression and to make an end of sin. The Hebrew word here, uh, to make an end, is the same word that's used down further, seal up. The word is katam in the Hebrew and it means to stop up or to seal up. Why? So that sin can no longer spill out. You're going to stop up the sin. It can no longer seep into the life of Israel. Ever since we started using raw honey instead of sugar in my home, Everything is sticky. The remote control, which is in the other room, is sticky. David's stuffed animal in his bed, sticky. Oh, it was sticky before, but not like this. I mean, there's honey everywhere. You put the lid on nice and tight, set it away, you go to pick it up, sticky. Drives me nuts. And I was thinking today, sin's like that. It just seeps out. It gets on stuff. It gets all over everything. In fact, my sin gets on other people. And they start going, what is this? Because sin seeps. And so the Lord says, we're going to make an end of sin. We're going to stop it up. We're going to seal up sin. No longer will sin be able to seep out into the life of the people, my people Israel. He says, we're going to make atonement for iniquity. Atonement for iniquity. Gang, redemption through personal acceptance of the blood of Christ Jesus is what he's talking about there. And by the way, the blood of Jesus accomplishes all of this. It just needs to be accepted by Israel as a people. And by His grace in the last Shabuah, the last 
unit of seven years. Israel's eyes will be opened to see their Messiah. Zechariah 12 verse 10, I'll pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Why does, why does Jesus, in, in bringing that prophecy, say, in the first person, they will look on me whom they have pierced, and then in the third person, he says, they will mourn for him. Why does he put it that way? We'll talk about that when we get to Zechariah. The fourth thing that he says we're going to do here, yeah, I'm serious, I have no idea why he does that, we'll, but we'll get there. He says, fourthly, to bring in everlasting righteousness. What's that? What? What? The kingdom. The kingdom. The everlasting righteousness of God begins when He brings the millennial kingdom under the righteous rule of Jesus. Righteousness begins. Righteousness is the standard. It is the constitution. It is the law. Righteousness. And it comes when Jesus brings the kingdom. Isaiah 65, verse 18, Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. He says the next thing, to seal up vision and prophecy. To seal up vision and prophecy, why? Because with the conclusion of the 77s of this 490 year period, everything spoken by God will be fulfilled. No more need for prophecy. It's all done. By the time we get to the end of the 490 years, the promises prevail. We sang every promise of His Word. I love that song. I've been wanting to do that for a while. Uh, I will stand on every promise of His Word. I will stand on every promise of His Word. Over and over you sing that and you start to believe it. I'm going to stand on every promise of His Word because His promises prevail. To seal up vision and prophecy. Isaiah 45.23, the Lord says, I have sworn by Myself the Word has gone forth from My mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to Me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Or as Paul wrote in Philippians 2.10, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And number six, finally he says, to anoint the most holy place. The final thing that's going to happen of all these six things that will be accomplished, this is a reference to the anointing of the Holy of Holies in the Millennial Temple. When we studied this, Ezekiel 41-46 through covers that so beautifully, the picture of that millennial temple and the millennial complex and and Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. You remember that vision? It wasn't that long ago we were reading about that. Ezekiel 43, verse 4 tells us, "...the glory of the Lord came into the house by way of the gate facing toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house." And then I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man was standing beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the holy place, the most holy place, becomes Jesus' throne room and the place of the soles of His feet. Well, verse 25. That's all going to be accomplished in this 490 year time frame. So you are to know and discern 
that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks, or seven Shavuah, and 62 Shavuah. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. So there's going to be a decree issued, he says. And from the issuing of the decree to rebuild the city, you start start counting. Go out seven Shavuah. That would be seven times seven, 49 years. Go out seven Shavuah, 49 years. Then you're going to go an additional 434 years after that. But let's not get confused here. What was the decree? When was the decree that this is based on? Do we know? And Bible scholars have come up with four. Four different decrees specifically mentioned in Scripture that could possibly be connected to this. First is the decree of Cyrus. In 538 B.C., it's the one we already talked about tonight, where he gave the exiles the right of return. Ezra, chapter 1, verses 1-4, through deals with the decree of Cyrus. The right of the return to to Jerusalem and the right to rebuild the temple. Okay, So that's one possibility. Second possibility. The decree of Darius. Not this Darius, but it's a Darius 23-24 years later, who in 517 B.C. gave Ezra the right to return and rebuild the temple. Now that's Ezra chapter 6, verse 6. So Ezra chapter 1, they're given the right to go back and rebuild the temple, but they don't rebuild the temple, they just go back. So Ezra goes to the king, gets the right, gets a decree signed, so he can go back and get the temple going. Okay. Third possibility is the first decree of Artaxerxes. The first decree of Artaxerxes, which is in 458 B.C., Ezra talks about that in Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 through 26. First decree of Artaxerxes. Again, that's a decree giving Ezra the right now to replenish the temple, to restore the sacrificial system, and to take back whatever temple implements and utensils are still in Babylon. He can gather all that together now and take it back for use in the temple. So that's the first time that Artaxerxes gives a decree. Here's the fourth possibility, and this is the one you want to hear. Pay attention to. The second decree of Artaxerxes. We know the date. March 14th, 445 B.C. You might jot that down in your Bibles, because gang, that is, I am absolutely convinced, when this began to happen. When the decree was signed, and when we start the count of 490 years. March 14th, 445 B.C. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1-8 through talks about this decree. Nehemiah 2. It gives Nehemiah the right to fully restore and rebuild Jerusalem, streets, wall, and all. It's the only decree of the four that gives the right to rebuild the city. The rest you can rebuild the temple, or you can replenish the temple, or you can go back to the land. But none of the rest of them are about rebuilding the city. This is the only one. This is the only one that fits the prophecy as far as a specific decree. And Daniel 9.25 says, you're, you're to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks. Seven weeks. Forty-nine years. Do you know from the decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, exactly forty-nine years later, the city of Jerusalem was rebuilt. 
the wall was completed. The first seven. But he says, and, so add to that, 62 weeks. 62 weeks. Another 62 Shabuah. Another 62 sevens. Wait, I skipped something here. Nehemiah, it's talked about, I'll just give you this, Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, talks about how they rebuilt in times of distress. So exactly as the prophecy says, it'll be rebuilt in times of distress. And we're told in Nehemiah 4, verse 18, As for the builders, each wore a sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. So they were ready for battle. These were distressing times. They were threatened the whole entire time. It's just what the prophecy says. Now, you have 49 years, so the first seven Shabua has already taken place. Now the Lord says, add another 62 Shabua. What's that? 434 years. From that point on forward, for a total, 7 plus 62 is 69, right? A total of 69 units of 7 which adds up to 483 years. Now stay with me on this. you got to track this. You can't just say 483 years, because if you do that, it depends on what kind of year you're talking about. Are you talking about the Gregorian calendar, 365 days a year? Or are you talking about the Jewish calendar, the lunar calendar, which they were using, 360-day years? And that's completely different. So when we say 483 years, you've got to do it from the Jewish perspective, and what you come out with is specifically 173,880 days. And if you do it by days, it's easy to figure this out. Um, Anderson, in his amazing book, The Coming Prince, written back in the early, early 1900s, you ought to have that book on your bookshelf. It's called The Coming Prince. By Robert Robert Anderson. Can you Google it? It's an amazing book, and and you can get it in paperback. So you all ought to grab it on Amazon. Husbands, buy it for your wives for Christmas. Wives, give it. You know, I mean, it's kind of love gift. You know, Robert Anderson's The Coming Prince. This guy uh, was a, a very smart man. Worked for Scotland Yard. wrote 17 books, I believe, in his lifetime working for Scotland Yard, did all kinds of things. One of the books he wrote was The Coming Prince. And he began to look specifically just to map out the number of days we're talking about here. Brilliant man. And what we have to do, and what he figured out, is you've got to transfer from the lunar calendar, the Jewish lunar calendar of 360 days, to the Gregorian calendar, the solar calendar of 365 days, and you have to adjust for the leap years in between. And when you do that, note this, if we start on March 14th, 445 B.C., the date of Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild Jerusalem, and you go 483 years, that is 173,880 days, the prophecy says, on that day, at the end of that 483 years, from the time of the decree until Messiah the Prince, Mashiach, Jesus, should be 483 years from the decree to that point. What happened 483 years? That is 173,880 days. What happened? We land on, according to the Gregorian calendar, April the 6th, A.D. 32. So, so on that day, 
a rabbi from Nazareth rode into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey, while the people shouted, Hosanna. That's huge. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 prophesied, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you! He's endowed and just, endowed with salvation, uh, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We're told in Luke 19, verse 41, when Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. He's riding that donkey in. Hosanna to the Lord! They're praising the Lord, and Jesus begins to weep. And he cries. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus says, on this day is the time of your visitation. Whose visitation? Messiah the Prince. Jesus rides into Jerusalem fulfilling this section. The first 483 years fulfilled as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. As He arrives. Why didn't they know? Because they didn't pour over the Scriptures. Because they were not about the Word of God and prayer because they were in the midst of the biblical famine of Amos verse 26 then after the 62 weeks the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing the word cut off in the Hebrew is yikaret and yikaret means to hew or to cut down and it is used specifically to talk about the death of Messiah It is in conjunction with the prophecy of Messiah's crucifixion. Well, where's that? Isaiah 53, verse 8. The same word is used, Yekaret. Isaiah 53, 8. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away. As for His generation, who considered that He was Yekaret? Cut off. Out of the land of the living for the transgression of My people to whom the stroke was due. Remember, Isaiah prophesied that 250 years before Daniel prophesied what he prophesied. And yet it fits perfectly. But wait a minute. If Messiah is to be cut off at that time, shouldn't the prophecy, the first 483 years, shouldn't that land us on the date of the crucifixion as opposed to the date of His triumphal entry? And the answer is very clear. What does the prophecy say? It says, note this, it's precise. It says, after the 62 sevens, Messiah will be cut off. Which means, as long as the 62 sevens have happened, at any point after that date, Messiah will be cut off. Within one week of the 62 Shabuah, Jesus was crucified. Immediately after it was fulfilled. Messiah the Prince. He will be cut off and have nothing. By the way, it's a poignant description not only of the crucifixion, but of Jesus' entire life. One commentator wrote it this way. He said, Born in another man's stable. Cradled in another man's manger. With nowhere to lay his head during his life here on earth. Buried in another man's tomb. After dying on a cursed cross, the Christ of God and the friend of the friendless was indeed cut off and had nothing. 
and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, okay, there's a problem right there. Because you're going to try and tie that to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But if Jesus was cut off, if He died in A.D. 32, well, that's, you know, that's like almost 40 years later. doesn't matter. After Messiah the Prince comes. Anytime after, this can happen. And it did happen, in short order, after the Messiah was cut off. When was the city and sanctuary destroyed? A.D. 70. Who destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70? Titus did. The people of Rome. Rome. Note that. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. We know Rome destroyed the city and the sanctuary. It's the only other time in history that it ever happened. 586? But then, future from Daniel, it would have been 70 AD. And it happened. So the people of the prince who is to come tells us something about the prince who is to come. Right? He's rooted deeply in ancient Rome. Now, I don't know how that exactly is going to play out. But we will be able to see when this is completely fulfilled, we will be able to see this prince is rooted in Rome. Has his connections back to Rome. Why do you say that, Rick? Well, because the Word does. Because the Word tells us. The people of the coming prince, Rome, the coming prince himself, of Rome. Suddenly the prophecy leaps from this flood of destruction across the years and the wars to the very end. In fact, at this point, the timing gets murky because all this stuff has happened. 483 years worth. Done. Took place. As Messiah came, He's cut off. He has nothing. The people of the prince who is to come destroy the city, we're told, and its end will come with a flood indicating a massive army, indicating the flood of the Romans' armies destroying Jerusalem. And then he says, even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. Whoa! Dude, Gabriel, I was tracking with you 483 years, and all of a sudden you just went... All the way out to the end? Exactly. You need to pay attention to this. Why is this happening? So far... By the end of verse 26, desolations are determined. Only 69 of the 70 Shabuah have happened. We know that. And you can track it. It's beautiful. It's perfect. 483 out of 490 years can be accounted for precisely we're missing one week. And there are those who tried to say, well, from the crucifixion of Jesus, you just got to kind of squeeze it out to AD 70, and AD 70 fulfills this. No, it doesn't. Because the first 483 years, counted by days, is absolutely precise. And seven years after the crucifixion of Jesus, it was fine. The church was growing, stuff was happening, Rome was still there. The desolations didn't happen. The flood didn't happen. The destruction of the city did not happen by the people of the prince who is to come. That didn't take place seven years after the crucifixion. Well, yeah, but you just if you spiritualize it, if you allegorize it, you can say it was AD 70. Well, sure. If you, if you allegorize it, you can say it was on Les's birthday. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense when everything else is so day by day, word by word, literal and precise. We're missing one week. Okay then, 
if we know the 483 works, weeks were precise, or 483 years were precise, why didn't it just continue on seven more years? It should have. The answer is simple, gang. This prophecy has to do with Israel, not us. This is not our prophecy. This is not a prophecy of world history. This is a prophecy for Israel. And when Jesus was crucified, the clock stopped. Because at that point, at that moment, after all the years of prophecy leading up to the coming of their Messiah, in that moment Israel said, we don't want Him. And God said, okay, stop at 483. Hold the last week. Because Israel has just cut off Messiah. And because Israel cut off Messiah, the prophetic clock stopped ticking. What happened next? The times of the Gentiles kicked into full gear. And from that point forward, God in essence said, okay Israel, as a people, I'm going to set you right over here. And I'm going to deal with the Gentile world now. Because you rejected Messiah, but those Gentiles are coming like crazy. They like what they see and what they hear. They want Jesus. So I'm going to deal with them. I still have Israel over here. I'm still going to deal with Israel. I promised them I would. Not because of them, but because of me, the Lord says. So He sets Israel aside. The 483 years, it stops right there. And off we go with the times of the Gentiles. And Jesus described it, Luke 21-24, speaking of Israel, they will fall by the edge of the sword. And they will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And we are in the last days, gang, of the times of the Gentiles. The final seven years, that final Shabuah, seven years, it's the tribulation. And we've studied this and talked about this over and over through the years. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. Jeremiah describes it this way, Alas, for the day is great, there's none like it. It's even the time of Jacob's trouble. The final week. The tribulation is for Jacob. It's his trouble. But he shall be saved from it. Verse 27 tells us now we've jumped to the end. And now verse 27 is about the last week. It's about the final week. And the reason why it's a little murky is for Daniel and for the people and across history, some things needed to happen for it to become clarified for us. Verse 27. And He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Stop right there. He who? Okay, now you say Antichrist, but in the passage, who is the He referring to in the passage? Okay, the prince who is to come. Okay, Some people say, well, no, it could, it could refer back to Messiah. See, He will make a firm covenant, and the Messiah was, was the focus back in verse 26. And you need to understand, in, especially specifically in Hebrew, that He refers back to the most recent subject. And the most recent subject in this prophecy is the Prince who is to come. So we're not talking about Messiah the Prince, we're talking about the Prince who is to come, which is a different Prince. You all know this, Christ the Messiah is the Prince. Christ is Messiah the Prince. Antichrist is the Prince who is to come. Now, if you had never studied these things before, you might you might wonder, okay, 
why does the Lord use the same title? It's a little confusing. We have Messiah the Prince, now we have the Prince, uh, the people of the Prince who is to come. Well, is that not Messiah the Prince? No, it's a different guy. Well, why use the same word for both? Because Antichrist comes as another Christ. Antichrist comes presenting himself as the Prince. He says, it's me. I'm your answer. I'm your man of peace. I'm your great world leader. I'm the one who's going to solve all the problems. I'm your Messiah. Antichrist doesn't mean against Christ. Antichrist means another Christ. And so he comes along, not Messiah the Prince, but the Prince who is to come, having his roots, his ancestry, in the soil of Rome. But he is the false Prince, the false Christ. And Revelation 6, verse 2, talks about him. The verse says, I looked and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Quickly, some people say, how do you know that's Antichrist? Because there are Revelation students who say, Revelation 6, verse 2, the rider on the white horse is Jesus. No, it's not. Well, how do you know? Well, first of all, he comes with a temporary crown. The word crown there is Stephanos, which is the leafy crown that dries up and withers and dies. The crown Jesus wears when he comes in Revelation 19 is the diadem, which is a massive, golden, beautiful crown that does not fade and die. This... This guy riding on the white horse comes out with a bow. No arrows, just a bow. Well, what does that mean? Well, the bow is the same word that reflects the bow, the rainbow, which was God's first covenant. So this guy comes out riding to make a covenant. He rides to conquer, we're told. And if you really want to know who he is, if you want to be absolutely sure, check out his posse. <laughs> War, famine, and death. This is Antichrist. And this prince comes riding in on a white horse to save the day. He makes a seven-year peace treaty with Israel. That's what we're told here in verse 27. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one Shabuah. Seven years. Seven-year peace treaty. But halfway through it, three and a half years in, he's going to break that covenant. In the middle of the week, in the middle of the Shabuah, the seven years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering on the wing of abominations will come will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Daniel 11, when we get there, in just a week or two, is going to be even more clearly illuminate this so-called prince and the devastation that rides with him. You may recall back in Daniel 7, verse 25, He will speak out against the Most High. He will wear down the saints of the Highest One. He will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into His hand for a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. Halfway into seven years, this guy breaks the covenant, and for three and a half years, he rides roughshod on the world. A time, times, and half a time. Daniel 11.31 says, Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. So it's spoken of here in Daniel 9. It's spoken of in Daniel 11.31. And again in Daniel 12, verse 11. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How long is that? We are close. It's actually three and a half years plus 30 days. Why? Well, I'll tell you when we get to Daniel 12. I'll explain that later. But remember, remember that 
the abomination of desolation was acted out by Antiochus Epiphanes back in 168 B.C., historically pertaining to the time of the end, a historical picture of the prophecy. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, 15, and 16, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Jesus, what do we need to understand? Understand the timing of all this. Brothers and sisters, get this down. Jesus indicates that the abomination of desolation is the pivotal moment of the final Shabuah of the last week of that seven years. The pivotal moment three and a half years in, halfway through, when the covenant is violated. And Jesus says that's what's going to happen. The abomination of desolation. Paul talks about it. We won't go there. Read it right now. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. In fact, all of chapter 2. He illuminates this even further. The book of Revelation is opened up and explained when we realize we have one week to go. We have one period of seven years left, and that is the tribulation. Why is it opened up? Because the Revelation views this future week, Revelation 6-19, through views it as a seven-year period of time in two halves. I mean, listen to the language of the Revelation. In Revelation 11, it talks about 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. In Revelation 12, it uses the phrase a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. And in Revelation 13, it says 42 months. Three and a half years. You see how specific it is? And Jesus is saying, let the reader understand. They're, they're really, it, it shocks me when we look at all of Scripture together and we put all of this in the same place, on the same table, and look at it. It absolutely shocks me that people don't just take a literal view. We know 483 years took place. We know it was prophetically fulfilled. Exactly. We know we're missing a a seven-year period. We know it's talked about in Revelation. We know halfway through, all this stuff. We know it's going to be violated halfway through, and you got three and a half years of Antichrist going nuts. We know this. (coughs) That is, if we're in the Word, if we're studying the Bible, There's not a whole lot of room... Oh, Rick, you're sounding dogmatic. Hey, there's not a whole lot of room for interpretation when you take the word at face value. Just take it for what it means. Now, someone might say, well, why does God do that? Why does He say 1,260 days here? And He says a time, times, and half a time here. And He says 42 months here. Why not just say three and a half years and be done with it, Lord? It would be a lot easier for us. Yeah, why does He do that? That we might pour over the Word. That we might be in His Word and studying it. You see, He didn't just give this to us to give us the answers. He gave it to us to draw us in. To say, you've got to, you got to spend some time here. I, I've given you all the answers, but I'm not just going to hand it to you for free. You've got to come and, and work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Come spend some time with me in the Word and prevailing in prayer. Because you see, God knows if, if His Word is in us, the more His Word is in us, the more our prayers are going to reflect His Word. And that's how prayers get answered. And that, by the way, is how you start to hear the Lord. 
Daniel wrote all this down in 539 B.C. Jesus comes along and confirms it, Matthew 24, in 32 B.C. And John reconfirmed it in the late, probably mid-90s A.D. The final week has never happened. Will it? You bet your prophetic boots it will. It's coming. That tribulation period. You all have done great. I hope you've understood this. One last question for you and we'll go home tonight. Did any of the first 483 years of this prophecy, any of it, involve the church? No. You sure? You positive? You're right. You're right. None of this first 483 years involved the church. So why do people want to put the church in the last seven years? Why would we think that we're going to be there for the tribulation? It doesn't apply. It doesn't involve us. We were not destined for wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, but for salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Amen. And so when all this comes down, gang, the Lord will already have called us home, and I am prevailing upon the Lord for that promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Powerful Word. And I pray, Father, that, that the explanation is clear here. And I pray that You'll just get this in. Lord, more than understanding the 490 uh, years, more than understanding the 77s and all of this amazing prophecy, Father, our prayer, our cry, our heart, is that You will teach us to prevail upon You in prayer. That we will be a people of the Word and a people of prayer. And that this, Father, will be how we live our lives until You call us home. And let me just ask one more time tonight, Father, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray in Your precious name. Amen.